This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So today for our hot question of the day, we are going to talk about the issue of vaping. There are some new vaping regulations that are about to be announced by the provincial government. We've been waiting for these for a while. Uh, There was a lot of pressure on the government to do something, to act. And actually that's been pressure on, you know, provincial governments right across Canada and on the federal government as well. So it sounds like there's going to be a a substantial announcement today because it actually involves three ministries. It involves the Ministry of Health as you might imagine, the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Education. So three ministers, Adrian Dix, Carol James, Rob Fleming, expected to be at that announcement today. So definitely sounds like they will be targeting younger people who vape. How common is vaping in Canada, especially among teenagers? Well, there was a study published in the British Medical Journal, which surveyed Canadians between the ages of 16 and and 19, so that three-year age group, and they did this in 2017 and 2018. What did they find? The percentage of those who said they had vaped grew substantially during that time. So in just that one-year period, it went from 8.4% of everyone in that age group to 14.6%. That is just one year, and that was almost two years ago. So imagine how much it has grown since then. We have heard from schools, uh, principals, and teachers who say, listen, this is an epidemic. Uh, In Canada and the United States, of course, there has been just a huge amount of concern in the last few months about the increase in the rates of vaping and e-cigarette use. We heard earlier how if you want to buy uh, vapes or e-cigarettes or the cartridges that go in them, there's something like 90,000 retailers in BC alone for you to do that. That is astounding. And as our Claire Allen was telling us earlier, there's only about 6,000 retail places for you to buy cigarettes or buy tobacco, but 90,000 to buy vapes. So what will this crackdown mean today? It's definitely going to be focused on kids. So for our hot question of the day, we want your opinion on this. We want to know, should there be just an outright ban on vaping products until we know more about how to do this. We can bring it in safely with certain age groups, with certain rules and regulations. It almost seems like the cat's out of the bag on this one already, right? Like we're trying to rein it back in. Uh, Should we just say, nope, we're stopping this until we can figure out the best way to do this? Or do you go, nope, let adults choose. You know, some people, if if adults want to do this and they should be allowed to do this. So weigh in with your thoughts here. So I'll let you go to our um, Twitter page, which is at CKNW or at SimiSarah980. You can cast your vote there. You can also email me with your thoughts on this. Simi at CKNW.com. Would be very curious to hear I personally, for me, outright ban anybody under the age of 19. Like, I, I just think that's pretty straightforward at this point. That's the best way to do this until they can get a handle on what has been happening. Look in the States, right? Hundreds and hundreds of cases of lung illness. They believe that is related to the, what is it? The vitamin E acetate mixture that is in those cartridges. And until they can figure this whole thing out, just stop selling it. And then figure, especially to young people, and then figure out where to go from there. So call us on our buzz line too, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Big, big story happening today. BC leading the way when it comes to cracking down on youth vaping. I had a couple of adults who had emailed me very upset about this saying, oh, they're making money off this. Well, 
No, they're making money by increasing the tax from 7% to 20%. That's like with tobacco products, right? This is a tobacco product. They're also not limiting flavors to adults. So for adults, really the only change you're going to feel is the fact that might be a little stricter in purchasing. Maybe you'll have to show your ID or something like that. And uh, the tax is what you're going to feel after January 1st if that legislation is passed. For kids, though, it's different. They're cracking down on what's available to youth, trying to make sure that they're keeping this out of the hands of youth. I, I had this email from someone who didn't want me to use their name, but said, our grandchild who vapes spent hours yesterday in the ER due to chest pains and trouble breathing. Finally diagnosed with bronchitis, which is one of the symptoms of vaping problems and of which will continue to get worse if our grandchild does not stop vaping. We can only hope this was enough of a wake-up call for our grandchild as our grandchild's chances of accomplishing those future dreams she speaks of may very well never happen. That's scary. That's scary for a grandparent there too. And this is their, their grandchild, I would assume, teenage and in the hospital because of bronchitis linked to vaping issues. That story has become all too common. We've heard that right across this country and the United States as well, leading to these changes today. So let's analyze some of what it is that we heard today. Our Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria is Keith Baldry. He's been listening to the press conference and shares some of his analysis with us now. Well, I was impressed by just how broadly based uh, this plan is, a 10-point plan, and a number of those points sort of have uh, sub-points within that. So it's a, it's a multi-pronged uh, approach here, and it's aimed, again, not at middle-aged people or, or lifelong smokers, because the argument can be made, and Adrian Dix pointed this out, if they switch to vaping, that's actually a, a method of harm reduction. Uh, but it's really targeted at young people, particularly teenagers and even young teens, uh, that there's no reason to start vaping uh, at all, and that is a significant significant health risk. So uh, again, t- sort of coming at the problem any number of ways, but chiefly through regulations. There's no new law that's going to be passed here other than some changes to taxation, but it's through regulations through cabinet. So it is going to be uh, regulating and, and limiting the amount of nicotine, for example, uh, banning advertising in, uh, free, in areas frequented by young people, such as bus shelters and parks and the like. No sidewalk advertising outside vapor stores. Uh, and again, that big increase in, uh, in the sales tax, I thought was interesting. 20 uh, 20% sales tax now up from 7%. That's the only uh, special vapor tax uh, through in, in the entire country. And also advertising, as I mentioned, banned in the parks, bus shelters, and other areas that are frequented by young people. And that's sort of an evolving uh, issue. That will be determined over time how much more extensive the advertising ban is. Uh, as well, there's, uh, again, as I mentioned, a restriction on uh, on a number of uh, aspects in terms of gaining access to vaping products. So it's a it's a comprehensive um, uh, approach here by Adrian Dix, who's been musing aloud uh, for some time. And he's been talking about nicotine. Uh, that it was sort of his chief goal here was really to reduce the amount of nicotine uh, available, to, particularly for young people, and uh, new rules for retail outlets. And those rules apply on a number of different fronts. So it's going to take some time for the full impact of today's announcement to be felt. But I think, and the tax, for example, doesn't take effect until January 1st. But uh, this is going to be felt over a period of time. And retail outlets, the goal is to drive down the number of points of sale 
sale. Right now, there's something like 90,000 different places in B.C. you can purchase vaping products. And the goal is to get that down to a much, much smaller number. They won't give out the number, but uh, one assumes it would be approaching where you can buy tobacco, which is about 6,000 outlets. That is Keith Baldry uh, sharing some of his analysis there. Uh, That was a point that Health Minister Adrian Dix made as well. They call this an urgent health crisis in British Columbia. And they said nicotine levels in vaping became much higher in the last couple of years because of some changes in in the delivery method of that technology. And that is why you saw this huge uptake in it as it became more and more addictive. They are also hopeful that the federal government is going to soon take action to support and enhance what BC is doing on this front as well. And as you heard, if the legislation is passed, there will be an increase in the tax on vaping products. Uh, So that is from 7% PST now to 20% uh, if that happens starting on January the 1st of 2020. So that's a lot of changes, in particular when it comes to regulating the amount of nicotine that is in these pods, essentially. Nicotine in vapor pods and liquids is being restricted to 20 milligrams per milliliter. Christopher Carlson is a professor of medicine and the head of UBC Respiratory Medicine as well. And he explained to our Nikki Reitmeyer today about why that in particular might be helpful. Nicotine is the addictive substance in uh, in most e-cigarettes now, putting aside those that are focused on THC or cannabis. But the majority of the product uh, really is marketed around nicotine-containing e-cigarettes, and the addiction is is roughly in proportion to the amount of nicotine, uh, and also the toxicity is also related to the amount of nicotine. So if the nicotine amount is lowered, then A, it will be easier to get off the product um, when the individual is ready to do so. And secondly, the toxicity that we're concerned about should be that much less. Now, it's still concerning to use these products whatsoever, and the long-term implications are still potentially bad with with any amount of uh, nicotine or any amount of nicotine in, in in the realm that we're considering. But a lower amount is still is still better. Better. So, I've favor that approach, although uh, not having the product on the market at all would have been even better, but that's just not realistic right now. That is Chris Carlston, professor of medicine and head of UBC Respiratory Medicine. Uh, So the flavored vaping product issue is a big one as well. They're going to regulate those sales, restricting the flavors that are available and adult vaping stores will be able to sell a few additional flavors, but only to adults. In all other locations, anything that there might be a youth available, you know, that kind of thing, the only flavor that's going to be available in those kinds of locations are tobacco flavor. That is it. They are going to definitely crack down on the flavored products that are out there if you're in or selling at a location that youth might have access to. Now, if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Use our buzz line, 604-331-2899. There's a lot to unpack here, right? This just got announced 45 minutes ago. So we will, of course, be continuing to disseminate that information for you and have your reaction to it as well. I know, Port Moody residents, you are probably really tired of hearing about this and talking about it. Well, it turns out your mayor had a bit of a press conference this morning to announce that he plans to return to work to his office on Monday. Now, that is after the staying of the sexual assault charge that he had been facing. That happened yesterday. 
the special prosecutor saying that they did stay the charge given Rob Vagramov's completion of an alternative measures program. Now, that can mean all sorts of things. They didn't specify exactly what the alternative measures were, but it could be anything like financial compensation and apology, community service work, uh, essentially whatever was agreed on. He completed it. Charges were stayed. He says he is now coming back to work on that. Now, he had, of course, taken uh, time away from the job, not once but twice because of the these allegations. He spoke to reporters in just the past hour, and here is what he had to say. Um, earlier this year, uh, as uh, all of you uh, obviously know, uh, I found myself facing a horrible charge, one that I vowed to fight every step of the way. I'm glad to announce that after having my file extensively examined uh, by the authorities for the better part of a year, um, the charge against me has been dropped, and there's no longer a criminal case against me. The situation has been hard on all of those involved. Uh, I want to really thank uh, my family, my friends, uh, and supporters for their words of encouragement uh, during the past few months. Personally, I am happy to live in a place where people's reports are taken seriously uh, by the justice system, where no one stands above the law, and where being an elected official uh, means more scrutiny in the justice system, not less, and where the justice system is able to distinguish predatory behavior from awkward dates that could have benefited uh, from more communication. Uh, I'm very glad to be exonerated of this charge, to have my name cleared, uh, and to have this issue behind me. As previously discussed, uh, over the past few, uh, past uh, couple days, uh, or sorry, over the next couple days rather, I'll be transitioning back to office, uh, to the office that I was elected to, um, and I, I will be resuming full duties on Monday. I want to thank our acting mayor, uh, Councillor Steve Milani, for his work uh, over the past few days uh, and weeks, filling in after I chose to step away um, until uh, I was cleared of this charge. The Office of Mayor uh, will not be commenting further uh, on my personal legal matter, but I will say that in the coming weeks, uh, I'll be trying to arrange a meeting with our Minister of Local Government uh, to push for uh, much-needed reform legislation to clarify how these kind of situations are, are handled uh, so that no other community in BC has to go through something similar. Uh, I'm very regretful uh, of the, some of the division that has been caused in our community, uh, although I am glad to see this charge behind me. Okay, so that's Port Moody Mayor Rob Vagramov. I have to correct something that he has said over and over again in that statement there. He repeatedly said his charge was dropped and that he had been exonerated. That's not true. What the special prosecutor said yesterday is that the charge was stayed. There is a very important legal difference between those two things. Stayed charges can be brought back to life within one year if they are stayed charges. That is not the same as if they are dismissed or withdrawn. So he was not exonerated, as he says there. Those charges are still there. Not only that, if the charges have been stayed, they stay on file. And according to pardons.org, if the person was fingerprinted as a part of those charges, uh, essentially that can all still be seen on a criminal background check if that is done. So there is a very legal and significant difference between what Rob Vagramov has said there and what the special prosecutor said. He's claiming exoneration, charges dismissed. That is not what happened. Charges were stayed, which means they still exist out there and can be brought back. But for now, they are satisfied that he completed this alternative measures program, which by the way, what does alternative measures mean? 
Jill Bennett with Global News. Thank you. Can you tell us what alternative measures you participated in or what you actually did? For sure. Um, the alternative measures process, first off, it was approved by the Crown. Uh, it was agreed to by the complainant. Um, I apologize to the complainant uh, way back when this first came out um, for the awkward date that we had. I apologized again recently. Uh, and if she brought this back, uh, she brought this up uh, back in 2015, I would have gladly apologized then. Uh, because it was never my intention to leave her with any kind of negative impression. And uh, there was nothing else uh, involved in the alternative measures program. Sounds like an apology then as part of that program. So anyway, there's more to come on that. Port Moody, your mayor will be back at work on Monday. All right, let's get an update now more on what is happening, which sounds like going sideways with these talks between Coast Mountain Bus Company and Unifor, the union representing bus drivers and maintenance workers at CBUS. Should mention Coast Mountain Bus Company is having a press conference at 12.30. We will have that for you live. Right now, let's check, check in with Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Simi, and the Unifor Union uh, just wrapping up their news conference right now. I'm in the hotel in Surrey where they have been meeting with uh, Coast Mountain Bus Company since about 10 o'clock this morning, Simi. Uh, the union negotiating team just emerged from their meeting room about five minutes ago, and here's the gist of what they told reporters here. Both sides have mutually agreed to end their talks for the time being. And what that means to the everyday commuter semi going forward, there will be job escalation now. The bus drivers, we are told, will not be accepting any overtime. And we've heard countless times that there's a lot of overtime being carried out by bus drivers. So this could very much impact the morning commute tomorrow. We are also told uh, that some drivers already refusing overtime. So some routes could also be impacted for this afternoon rush hour, we'll just have to wait and see how bad it becomes. Uh, the union spokesperson, Gavin McGarrigal, who has been uh, speaking to the media and conveying this information, telling reporters that the company is still not serious about getting down to the nitty-gritty in negotiations. And we've heard before the key issues in this, wages, benefits, and working conditions. He did tell us earlier going into the talk, just prior to 10 a.m., that there was some progress made in terms of the working conditions yesterday, and because of that, he was feeling pretty positive. But this is the end result now. Both sides, Simi, mutually agreeing to end the talks for now. Uh, okay. Coast Mountain, as you say, having a news conference at uh, 12.30 today, so we'll be looking forward to hearing what they have to say as well, Simi. Okay, so that sounds like it was a, a mutual decision. It wasn't one side walking away from the table. Correct. They both mutually agreed to end it for now. So, yes, they didn't actually, you know, get upset and storm out of the meeting as they did last week, the union. So right. they've mutually agreed to end things. Um, as I say, there was a little bit of progress made yesterday. Uh, the, the union seemed fairly pleased uh, the way right. things were going. Um, okay. But, you know, still many, many outstanding issues. Um and gosh, you know, okay. going forward, we, we sure hope that they can get it together again and find some common ground. But this is where we stand right now today, Simi. All right, Janet, thank you so much for that. That's Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. We also want to talk directly now with Unifor's Gavin McGarrigal, who has just called in to give us an update on this. Mr. McGarrigal, thanks for being here. Yeah, hi, Simi. What went wrong? What happened? Well, we've been warning uh, since last week that we thought the company was never serious about resolving the outstanding issues. They started to indicate they were prepared to talk about everything. And so we agreed to go back to the table on that basis. 
We asked them yesterday morning again if they were prepared to discuss all outstanding issues, and they said they were. And so in good faith, we rolled up our sleeves and continued work yesterday primarily on working conditions. We started to narrow the gap a little bit on that, but we didn't uh, quite get there. And then as we started toward the evening to ask to talk about the outstanding issues and start to get into um, you know monetary positions, uh, the company indicated it wasn't ready last night. So we broke for the evening, again, cautiously optimistic that they were listening and that this wasn't a monumental bait and switch and that they were serious. But unfortunately, this morning, they came back in and indicated that um, they didn't see uh, any any basis for settlement. They continued to reject any comparison with uh, Toronto Transit worker wages, even though they're happy to do that for the executives at Transit and Coast Mountain. They continue to reject any notion of parity for skilled trades workers who work under Transync between the SkyTrain system and the Coast Mountain system. And, of course, we've seen now SkyTrain worker talks have broken off. And they really continue to reject most other outstanding issues that were out there. And so at that point, the parties mutually uh, concluded that uh, we did not have a basis for settlement. And so, therefore, we are now moving not only for the driver's overtime ban tomorrow, but next week, we are going to institute a further driver's overtime ban for Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of next week. Was there one particular thing that caused the break? Like, was there anything that you made progress on? What about working conditions? Well, as I said, we had some good discussions yesterday, and we managed to um, get some good ideas out on the table. We didn't finalize those discussions. Um, you know, but there were some ideas that were being moved around that uh, were better than before, but uh, we still didn't quite get there. But, of course, as we've been saying all along, to get a deal, all of the issues need to be addressed. That was part of the reason that we were reluctant to go to the table, because we thought that the company wasn't prepared to move on the outstanding issues. And we warned everyone that uh, we thought they were playing games. And, unfortunately, what we've realized today is uh, it was all a, a bait and switch to begin with. Uh, they were never serious from the beginning about addressing all of the outstanding issues. Was there any movement, though? There was some movement. Uh, there was some indication of areas that they could move, and we also indicated areas we could move. But uh, at the end of the day, the fundamental comparisons with uh, the Toronto Transit Workers and SkyTrain, uh, the company just continued to flat out reject that and, and say that uh, you know they they were not prepared to to move um, you know to to deal with those issues. And, and there's a number of other you know issues on the table. So you know there was some movement. Um, but it uh, just wasn't uh, anywhere close enough for either side uh, to, to reach a deal. So can you foresee getting back to the table at all, though, since it's both sides that are kind of mutually saying, here, we're going to take a break from talking? Yeah, when we when we agreed to uh, to break, we, we also agreed that if they had a change in their mandate, that we'd be prepared to get back together, you know, as soon as possible. We're, we will stay in contact with them, obviously. And uh, what we need them to do is go back and ask some hard questions about, you know, why is it that it's okay for the executives to compare with Toronto, but not the workers? Why is it that even though they acknowledge they have a shortage of skilled trades workers at Coast Mountain, that they continue to pay workers at SkyTrain more? So, you know, they really need to answer those questions. And if they, if they can come come back and address those things, we'll be back at the table. But uh, they made it very clear this morning that they weren't prepared to do that and rejected those comparisons. All right, uh, Gavin, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks to me. That's Gavin McGarrigal, the Western Regional Director of Unifor, talking about the negotiations that have now broken off, essentially, with Coast Mountain Bus Company. The two sides mutually agreeing that no progress is being made, therefore they're going to both walk away from the table. And you heard about the impact. So the job escalation starts tomorrow. That is a bus driver overtime ban on Friday. And then looking to next week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we'll also see a bus driver overtime overtime ban. 
Well, today we're talking about major changes when it comes to dealing with vaping in BC, this province aiming to become the first in Canada to deal with what has been called this public health crisis. We heard earlier from Health Minister Adrian Dix, Finance Minister Carol James, Education Minister Rob Fleming on the 10-point plan the province is instituting. Let's get some more details now with the help of Adrian Dix, BC Health Minister, who joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Great to be on the show, Simi. Now, Minister Dix, big question that I had when I heard all of this, will any of this impact online purchases? Because that's where a lot of people buy their product. That's right, and that's a concern. Uh, it's why part of our initiative is to call on the federal government, which has been working on these issues from some time, to take action because they deal with interprovincial issues and so on. So um, we need to take action. I think our plan is very effective with respect to British Columbia, but it would be even more effective if the federal government took action uh, within its jurisdiction, and we expect them to do so. We briefed the federal government today on what we were doing on nicotine levels, what we were doing on flavors, what we were doing on labeling and advertising. But in several of those areas, including advertising, the federal government has broader power than we do, and we need them to act as well. And we've been participating in their consultation now for a year, and I'm hopeful that they're going to move to action um, once the new government comes together. All right, let's talk about the 10-point plan here. What do you think is the most significant thing that will make a difference? Well, I think... um, declaring nicotine a public health hazard and reducing um, the nicotine content of all vaping products uh, sold in British Columbia is very important. We're using the uh, standard used in the United Kingdom and the European Union, which for the moment are one thing. And, uh, and uh, that standard has led to lower um, uh, youth vaping rates in those jurisdictions. It's less addictive and, uh, and therefore uh, less dangerous and less harmful to young people who are attracted, I think, by two things principally, or three things principally, as I say. One is nicotine, the other is flavors, and the third is the fact that, um, uh, frankly, uh, the message has been unclear from the community as to whether these are healthy products or not healthy products. Our message is pretty clear. Um, If you're not a lifetime smoker or you're not trying to get off a smoking addiction, don't vape. So which flavors are going to be limited? You talked about that, making sure the ones that are targeted to youth are no longer sold, but which flavors are those? Well, a critical question on that is firstly this. Right now, uh, under the current system, which was put in place in BC in 2016 and is supplemented by the national system in 2018, that current system, uh, vaping products can be sold in about 90,000 retailers. What we're saying is flavored products will only be able to be sold in adult-only retailers, retailing stores, essentially adult-only vaping stores. I think that's an important restriction on access. So in the rest of the stores, they can sell vaping products. They're going to be tobacco-flavored. That's a significant change. And secondly, we're going to be taking action on things that are clearly uh, directed to young people and things such as fruit and candy-flavored. And we're going to obviously review the market and uh, and make sure that doesn't happen as well within the adult-only vaping stores. But I, I think the key, what we want to do here, is to restrict and and uh, and take action on youth vaping without the effect of prohibition, which will be the creation of a large black market. So we want to have a regulated market for vaping, and the only people that really should be vaping are adults who choose to vape and adults who want to get off, get off, uh, off uh, an addiction to tobacco. 
the final thing I'd say, and I know this is a long answer. I apologize for that. That's, this is my curse to me. I know. Answers, it's all good, though. It's you know, all good. It's why you invite me once every six years. <laughs> but but uh, I think the really important thing as well is that we have to involve young people. You know, when we, you know, cigarette smoking, when I was growing up, wasn't allowed, but a lot of people smoked, right? Yeah. And, and we had strong laws and a lot of people smoked. And one of the ways we broke that was having young people make it culturally unacceptable to smoke. And so that's why we've created an advisory committee on youth. That's why they're going to inform our efforts on social media and other efforts, because I think youth can also tell us what, um, uh, what the best techniques are to, uh, to convince other youth not to vape. Okay, so if you're an adult then, what kind of impact will you feel from this? Well, um, if you're an adult who's using vaping products for what they're, they, the companies and everyone else say they're intended to do, which is harm reduction on cigarette smoking, uh, there won't be a great deal of effect. Um, there will be, um, uh, as uh, Finance Minister Ter- Carol James uh, announced, a new tax on vaping products, which is the first of its kind in Canada. This is all of these measures really are the first of their kind in Canada and um, that we're taking. And I think so that will increase somewhat the cost. But I think people understand, I know the people I took to understand in the community, that uh, the growth of vaping amongst young people reaching 20 to 30 percent in schools, including uh, middle schools, right, um, is a reason to act. And so part of the plan is obviously an increase in costs, and that will have some effect on adults who vape because they'll be paying more. Right. Okay. But if the stores as well that are adult only vaping stores, you mentioned an increase uh, in enforcement and a crackdown on that, making sure they're not selling to youth. Does that go with this? Yeah. And but I think um, one of the problems we have now is the current legislation, the current regime for for uh, selling vaping products in British Columbia. Really, uh, it just enables the sale. Right. Uh, there's no limitations on who can sell the products. I was just by a grocery store. Uh, today, went saw one which was for the first time offering vaping products for sale. So limiting it to adult-only stores is important because it means only adults are in the stores. That's not the only way. We know young people get product um, from other people, including from adults. But I think it's one way to significantly control it. There are in the hundreds of adult vaping school, uh, stores in the in the province, which makes it also easier to work with them and easier to regulate. And they're interested in that now. If you're in the adult-only vaping business, I think um, in general you'll, you'll be uh, supportive of this kind of initiative, which, uh, which essentially reinforces the legitimate industry. All right. Listen, thank you very much for your time. Hey, anytime, Simi. Take care. Eh? Thank you. You too. That is Adrian Dix, the health minister, uh, expanding a little bit more on some of the announcements made this morning in regards to this crackdown on youth vaping in the province. A couple of very significant things that he said there. I was curious about online products because there's been lots of chatter about that online where people are saying, well, wait a minute, a lot of this stuff is purchased online. How will any of this impact that? That, as you heard uh, Minister Dix point out, is a federal responsibility, which is why they are working with the federal government and encouraging encouraging them to crack down on this as well. The provincial government announcing new regulations that will really crack down on youth and vaping in this province. The first time in Canada that a provincial government has attempted to do this. We're going to talk about the packaging in particular and the prohibition of the sale of flavors that appeal to youth. Joining us now to discuss this more is Marvin Crank, a professor at the Department of Psychology at UBC Okanagan. Uh, Marvin, thanks so much for being with us. 
It's my pleasure. So some of these measures that they have announced today definitely target the idea of products that are marketed to youth. Do you think that's the way to go? I, I think it's extremely important for, for a number of reasons. One, <clears throat> we've seen we've seen direct marketing strategies that clearly target youth in terms of packaging as well as placement of ads and that sort of thing. Um, two, we have also seen an extremely rapid rise in the uptake among uh, younger people um, in as low as, um, well, age 11 and 12, but we see it really strongly in middle schools now, and, and it's getting stronger. I've been growing at a, well, last year it grew by more than 50%, but it, it really kind of snuck up on us, but there's a lot of it going on. The schools are having a great deal of trouble uh, dealing with it because people hide these things. Right. And then the third reason is that youth are much more susceptible to the addicting properties of nicotine. So they are, they are more vulnerable uh, than most uh, older adults might be. Right. Now, Marvin, I had a lot of emails from people on this topic wondering, like, were we all just asleep at the switch? Was Health Canada asleep at the switch to allow these products to gain such a foothold in Canada? Like, what happened? I... I wouldn't blame anybody. This really, I mean, I study this on a, a, do surveys of drug use in the school. This just snuck up on us. It was the school district that finally said, you got to look at this because we're suspending students and we've got all these problems. And then it, it really snuck up on virtually everybody. And I think part of that is the way it's been advertised. Um, um, there's a lot more advertisement on social media and that sort of thing. Um, and, we we did see vaping initially in stores and that sort of thing, but it didn't look like it was particularly targeting youth until you go actually go inside the store. Right, um, and it's been marketed um, punitively, or at least on the surface, as uh, something that is designed to help people quit smoking. So it didn't seem to target youth. But when you look into it more deeply, it sure did. So do you think the like the vaping companies then just got too cocky, right? Like targeting youth, that's a surefire way to get government attention. Well, there, there is a lot of big tobacco in this because this is a way to, to sell their nicotine. Um, they seem to be very big into this already. In fact, I think they're actually buying one of the biggest ones, which is the uh, Juul uh, yeah. model of this. Um and they have a long history of of misrepresenting their product. Um, it's not terribly surprising. I mean, and they've done a lot of marketing of tobacco. Um, we we controlled it very strongly, and we were getting a good handle on it. But they were marketing flavored um, cigars and things of that nature that were uh, strongly appealing to youth, at least, but even even underage youth. Do you think then what you heard today, is this the way to go? Do you think BC's on the right track? I think reducing advertising as best we can is one of the one of the key issues because that seems to have been what worked with tobacco. We, we sort of started to get a very strong uh, upswell of, of negative reactions to smoking in public places and to and to the ads. You can't you can't really buy tobacco off the shelves. It's not visible anymore. You go into a vape shop, however, yeah, and you will see a bank of multiple flavors. Now, I, I, I haven't looked in B.C. recently. I was in Oregon and saw this, but certainly there's a bank of various flavors. Uh, uh, one of the brands is Co- 
that was marketed as called NUCAD. Yeah. Um, and it actually um, uh, in effectively mimics a candy. This was done with early marketing of some of the marijuana products in uh, in Colorado in particular. So the way in which it's marketed is critically important to how it impacts the um, especially underaged right. use, which is, which is, I think, our should be our biggest concern because if you don't start by the time you're 18 or 19, you usually don't start. So then, when you look at what's happening now, I mean, BC is the first. I assume other provinces are going to follow. The federal government will do this. Do, is this a turning point? Do you think? I hope so because we had, I mean, if you look at nicotine consumption over the years, it has shown an extremely steady decline getting down into the into the high teens in terms right. of percent um, and when this came on the scene it, it reversed it reversed and went up quite dramatically the other thing they're doing I, I believe is to um, start regulating content yeah. of, of the juices that's important for two reasons first of all we know there are some adulterants in there flavorings that may cause specific lung damage, and we're seeing some of that in the U.S. And we may find out which ones those are, and we should take them out and make sure they're not there. There are a lot of food additives in these things for the flavoring. Um, They've been approved for consumption in the the digestive system, but none of them have been tested or approved for their impact on lung tissue. Um, I think that the deaths that we're seeing and this extreme respiratory illness that we're seeing uh, in a number of different areas um, is is really a like a canary in, in the yeah. coal mine. It's really warning us. We don't know what these are going to do, but it's very unlikely that we uh, that they will be benign. I mean, they're going to they're going to cause harm. At least some of them, for sure. Uh, and in addition, nicotine addiction by itself is harmful. It yeah. has harmful health effects as well. Well, it's certainly a big change. Uh, Marvin, thank you very much for your time. Okay, no problem. That's Marvin Crank, a professor at the Department of Psychology at the UBC Okanagan. Uh, he specializes in nicotine addiction and targeted advertising as well, talking about today's youth vaping crackdown by the BC government. Now, we were telling you as well, Coast Mountain Bus Company is responding right now as to why they feel the talks with the union have broken down again. Michael McDaniel is the president and general manager of the Coast Mountain Bus Company. Here is some of what he has been sharing. Under our new proposal, transit operators would be guaranteed at least 40 minutes of recovery time on every scheduled shift. The guarantee would see our operators paid double time for any minute of that 40 minutes they miss during regular road conditions. However, despite the significant progress, we're disappointed that talks have once again broken off. Wages are now the key sticking point. Our wage offer to the union is well in excess of other public sector settlements in British Columbia. Under our current proposal, The top annual wage for transit operators would be boosted by around $6,000 over the next four years, bringing their annual total to just shy of $70,000. Top annual wages for skilled trades would be boosted by around $10,000, bringing their total to nearly $90,000 a year. This is fair and reasonable. However, the union is not prepared to move in any meaningful way from their wage demands. And unfortunately, union job action will now significantly impact commuters. 
We're asking the union to be more realistic about their wage demands given that our current offer far exceeds the rest of the public sector in British Columbia. I'm here to answer any questions you might have. Uh, Mr. Ashton, um, the union is saying that uh, you won't compare them to other transit workers, that you're looking across the whole public sector. Why not just look at what transit workers are making and base uh, wage increases on that? Well, you know, we, we've said this several times. We want to remain competitive in the markets that we recruit in, and we've been very clear about this. Uh, transit operators and skilled trades, we do recruit in this region. And in fact, specifically on the transit operators, over the last two years, we've received just shy of 10,000 applications for those jobs. The last two job fairs that we had, we had nearly 1,000 uh, people lined up to come and join, uh, join our organization here. We feel that we are competitive today. We do want to maintain that competitiveness. That's why we are lifting those job, uh, those wages faster than the rest of the public sector already in our current proposal. But why not bring them up to the level of, as they're saying, SkyTrain maintenance workers, and I know they're looking at Toronto as well. Uh, is there a reason why those direct comparisons uh, are being considered? Well, I think in terms, of, in terms of the transit operators in Toronto, again, we don't recruit in, the re in that region. We, we recruit in this region. We feel we are competitive for transit operators, um, hence uh, the, the applications that we have had. In regards to uh, the comparison to SkyTrain, it's not an exact comparison. Uh, again, it is a different organization, uh, represented by a different union. But again, the straight time hours are, they're different. Uh, for example, we have a Sunday premium. They don't have a Sunday premium. It's not exactly a apples to apples comparison. That is Michael McDaniel, just some of what he said today. The president and general manager of the Coast Mountain Bus Company, sharing the company's perspective on where talks went wrong today. Uh, two sides mutually agreeing to walk away from the table, meaning an escalation in job action starting tomorrow. Well, on Science with Simi today, we're going to have a discussion about the issue of depression. So why does it impact some people and not others? What factors into the onset of depression? Are there groups who are more likely to exhibit the signs and symptoms? Well, all of this interesting research was recently undertaken by Kwantlen Polytechnic University, the universities of Victoria and Toronto, and McEwen University. So what did they find out? Well, joining us now is Dr. Karen Davidson, Chair of the Health Science Program at KPU. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Simi. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell me about your research. So what were you looking into? So we were looking into mainly the association between depression and immigrant status. And we used Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging data which is a study that's ongoing, and it looks at uh, individuals between 45 to 85 years of age. Um, along with our main research question around immigrant status and depression, we looked at a number of other different factors, actually 32 other variables um, within that relationship to see if it impacted um, the association between immigrant status and depression. Oh, that must have been interesting. So p recent arrivals to Canada and whether or not that relates at all to depression? That's correct. And what we found there was that in women in particular that had been 20 years or less in Canada, they were two to two and a half times more likely to experience depression. But do we know why that is? Well, um, we think there's many different factors. For, that could be contributing. So, um, you know, immigrating to a new country can be quite stressful. And for women in particular, they may not have um, 
the social support networks that say their husbands might have who may be working. Um, also, there's a lot of challenges with immigrating to a new country, like learning a new language, um, getting your education and work experience recognized in a new country so that you can work in a similar job, um, and then just adapting to a new culture um, and all of those, and, uh, and also changes in diets that often occur. So um, studies have shown, for example, that uh, the longer that a person is in Canada that's immigrated, their diets tend to get higher in fat and sodium. And that can impact their mental health? Yeah, so, um, you know, increased fat, particularly saturated fats and sodium um, and the processed foods that contain a lot of that can contribute to inflammation and inflammation can then, um, you know, contribute to depression. That's really interesting. Is like, is that the first time we've ever heard something like this, that there can be these other external factors that lead to depression? Um, there's been other research as well that has shown um, links with diet and depression in different samples. Um, there's also other factors too, like socioeconomic factors and health-related factors um, that can contribute to depression. But diet um, has been shown to be independently linked with depression as well. So, so is that for people then who've arrived here and their diet changes, but what about people who've always had that same diet? Yeah, so we also did find an association uh, with different intakes of food with depression. So in the whole sample, so we looked at immigrants as well as those born in Canada, and we found that, um, you know, fruit and vegetable intake, the, the higher the intake, the less risk of depression. Um, we found association also with um, chocolate intake and salty snacks. And then for men in particular, higher fat intakes and higher intakes of omega-3 eggs, actually, we there was a lower likelihood of depression. Right. What do you think we can take away from this then, Dr. Davidson? Is this something that we have to be more alert for? Um, well, we, when we think about depression itself, it affects 1 in 23 people on a global basis. And it's the condition of major depressive disorder uh, is the second leading cause of disability. So studies such as this that show different factors that contribute to depression can help us then um, develop programs and policies that can help to mitigate depression, right? So, for example, in particular, immigrant women, um, because they seem to be a higher likelihood of, of getting depression, thinking of ways that we can, you know, build their social support ne networks and um, facilitate better diet, um, you know, so thinking of different programs and that that could help to reduce depression and then all the costs and associated with that. So do we do that now or is that something that we have to work on more? I think there's a lot of great programs that are happening now um, and they may take away some information from this study that could help to, you know, revise their content. Um, and I think also policy-wide, um, there could be a little more that's done like, you know, supporting uh, better income for immigrants, you know, so that they can access foods. Um, maybe more availability of uh, foods that they're accustomed to. So, you know, things like that might be a consideration. 
Right. Like what, what, how would that benefit, I guess, everybody then in terms of if we can make people's adjustment easier, that helps everybody, doesn't it? If they can settle in more, find jobs that make them happy, uh, that's a benefit to everyone. Of course. Yeah. It's like we're all in Canada and it has, um, you know, builds human capacity and overall, you know, social capacity. So it definitely benefits everyone. Right. So where is your research going to take you now? Did you have questions kind of coming out of this about the next thing you want to take a look at? Um, yeah. Well, we're continuing to look at this data. It's, they're going to be collecting it over the next 10 to 15 years. So we can start to look at things longitudinally. Um, but we have other um, analysis that we've done related to post-traumatic stress disorder, psychological distress, anxiety. So we're looking at other mental health as well as physical health um, outcomes. Do you think we can do more than uh, to mitigate some of these? Like if we know people are in a certain set of circumstances that might mean depression, is there more we can do to ward that off? Um, well, certainly there's a lot of you know programs, uh, particularly in urban centers, that I think, um, you know, making sure that they're connecting to people when they first come to Canada and following up, because um, it seems to be within that first five years where there's kind of the highest risk of developing depression and that because of, you know, their major transition. So I think just really, you know, being aware of when people come and just following up and, and then helping them to get access to the many different resources that are available. So whether it's you know, to a certain program or getting in to see a certain physician. So just having those supports in place, I think, would really be helpful. So interesting. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Karen Davidson, Chair of the Health Science Program at Kwantlen Polytechnic University.